Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hi, welcome to Tab's Two Cents. Today on the show, we're going to do a 2022 recap. I'm really excited about this episode because I started this podcast to learn and share, and I really believe that I've learned a lot of lessons over this past year with a great deal of amazing guests. And I can't think of anybody better to start than with Brian Feraldi when he says, investing is hard. Investing is hard, period. So let's just understand that. The learning to develop a long-term mindset and learning to think about businesses through the lens of investing is incredibly hard. There are a number of elements that are at play when it comes to investing. Not only do you have to be decent with analysis, uh, you have to be you have to understand human psychology. You also have to understand macroeconomic factors. You have to understand how other participants are going to influence markets, uh, et cetera. So there's a lot going on. And money is by by its very nature an emotional it's an emotional subject that is hard for our brains to handle. Uh, so to your point, if you if you buy something and that thing uh, goes up, you have an affinity, you have a natural likeness for for that thing. You you are happy that that thing. You don't want to give up that thing because it's making you money. Conversely, if you buy something and it goes down, you hate that thing. You think it's awful. You want to get that thing out of your life. These are just a few of the emotions that you have to deal with uh, as an investor. And and if you don't have a solid financial education, uh, it's natural for those few feelings to lead you to take actions that are detrimental to your wealth in the long term. So just just understand if you're going to be invest up front, investing is hard. What a great take from Brian there. I think it's important for us to realize as we move forward, especially in the spare market, that nothing's really going to come easy and there is no quick fix for finances. So with that being said, there are different strategies for different people. And in some cases, perhaps index fund investing or dollar cost averaging may be the way to go. Let's listen to what Doug Bastian has to say about index funds. I think it's better to have a longer term view and to just uh, start investing in an index fund immediately, start dollar cost averaging into it, put a little bit of money every every month or every few months into just one fund, automate it if you can. I think it just makes things very simple. Some of the greatest investors in the world their investment advice to people, most people, is to just buy an index fund. Why? Because index funds, um, in a lot of cases, can outperform actively managed money. Uh, I'm not saying that there isn't a, a great place for actively managed money. I, I believe there is. And we may be entering a time in the investment world where actively managed funds will do better than index funds, right? So I believe in having a... They, an index fund can serve a core um, a core position in most portfolios. If you take a look at large pension plans, a lot of large pension plans allocate a good chunk of their stock investments or equity investments to index funds. And why do they do that? It's a very efficient way of doing things. And uh, you know, sometimes actively managed money can outperform indexes, but a lot of the times they don't. So index just Indexing just makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. What a great take from Doug there on index fund investing. I did find it interesting that large pension funds tend to have a large portion of their portfolio put into index funds as well. So, I mean, if they can do it, then we can do it. But chances are that if you're watching this show, you're interested in finance and you like to pick your own stocks at times, which can be good, can be bad, depending on your personality and your financial situation. There are many different strategies to picking individual stocks. And one that I really enjoyed listening to was from Andy Wong from Runnymede. And what he happened to say was earnings matter. And this is something that stuck with me since that pod and a true lesson and learning moment for myself. I'm happy to share it. I would just share that my my investment approach, which was developed by my father, who was director of research at the Bank of New York. And then he ran the bank's money management subsidiary for 10 years. So he was managing the bank's pension fund as well as outside clients before he founded Runnymede. And my brother and I have since taken over Runnymede. So it's very much a family business, uh, but we still follow my father's investment philosophy, which is that earnings matter. The companies that we own are growing their earnings. So it's a very simple investment thesis. If a company is growing its earnings, the stock price should follow over time. And 
that's why the S&P 500 also goes up. The 500 companies in aggregate, the earnings are growing. So you want to own the group, the earnings go up, the stock prices go up. I've always had a hard time figuring out which sector is going to outperform. If I'm just looking to have diversification across different sectors and different industries, but the common characteristic is consistent earnings growth. If I own a portfolio of those and they're diversified, I may not be able to forecast which ones are going to perform the best for the year, but as a group, they tend to do well and underpinned by positive earnings and preferably not a lot of debt on the balance sheet. That's one thing that's kind of changed over time. When there was very cheap money, companies would just borrow and buy back stock. It's it's harder and harder to find companies that have zero debt, but I don't know. Maybe that'll change since you said that you know, we're kind of in an era of investing that could be shifting. Maybe it's shifting more towards active and away from passive. It might be changing in that sense too. We'll see what happens. Andy was a great guest, very knowledgeable and very gracious in sharing that information with us on earnings and how he sees a ideal portfolio. Of course, some investors may prefer to be a little more granular in their stock analysis. If that's the case, maybe you would enjoy listening to what Justin Klein had to say from KPP Financial on different metrics that we could look at. Oh, I like to look at enterprise value to EBITDA. Um, that's my probably my favorite, uh, just because it encompasses enterprise value is when you're looking at PE, most people look at PE, price to earnings. Uh, but both are, are very, very, uh, they don't tell the whole picture. Let's just say that. Um, on the PE side, all you're looking at is the market cap. And the market cap in, only is the price the, 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 the company is trading at times the number of shares outstanding. That's the market cap. Uh, that doesn't, and that's, that's just looking at the equity. But what about the debt? What if a company has a lot of debt? Or what if a company has a lot of cash on their balance sheet? Luckily for Shopify, they do have a lot of cash. So they're able to de- deal with uh, some cash burn right now, which is uh, probably going to be necessary over the next few years. So that's why I like to look at e- EV. Um, so the positive is that their enterprise value is actually less than a market cap, still 33 billion, lower than 38 billion in market cap. But uh, it's good if they have some cash. Then EBITDA, that's filtering out a lot of the non-cash charges. So uh, depreciation, amortization, that's uh, depre- you know, depreciation on buildings, for example, that oftentimes are not uh, really depreciating value. Same with amortization, amortizing um, certain assets like brands. Uh, those things uh, oftentimes don't, don't lose value. Uh, and so you know, it's more of a cash flow measure, even is than earnings, which can be uh, quite manipulated. Um, so that, those are the measures that I like to look at. Now, you want to compare them to the industry uh, as a whole. I like to see them generally in the teens or lower, um, preferably single digits. But once again, it depends on the industry. Some industries tend to trade at higher EBITDA, uh, others uh, a bit lower. So uh, that's important. Now with Shopify, there's no EBITDA. Right, so it's negative, so you can't really calculate it there. Now, price sales ratio is seven times, seven point seven actually. Anything above ten is you is historically it's extremely, 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 extremely hard to find a lot of examples of companies that are able to that are actually good investments when they're trading at over ten times uh, price of sales. And frankly, you know, a year or two ago, many names were trading at twenty times, which is absolutely egregious. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, most of those names have corrected, uh, but still 7.7 times is still pretty high. Uh, you know, I like to see that under three, uh, preferably now, once again, more software names, high, high margin businesses, they're going to trade at, at higher price sales ratios. That's just, uh, how, how it is. So it certainly depends on the company, depends on the industry, but 7.7 times is still very, very high. So, uh, it's still trading to me at a, at a high multiple for what the, uh, what, what the business is doing, both on the sales side and the profitability side. Some fantastic tips there from Justin on stock analysis. I'm always amazed at how much data we have available at our fingertips to pick and choose which stocks we prefer to invest our money in. Of course, if you're somebody who likes to day trade and you prefer to know how much money is in your account at the start and end, open and close of the market, perhaps technical analysis is something you may be interested in. Let's see how Chartman Dan from the Chart Guys prefers to go about his analysis and decide where he likes to enter and exit a trade. 
So this, this is, you know, the first thing I do when I'm looking at a new instrument, I want to look back and say, okay, how long has it been trading? It's been trading for about 14 years. I can see it's been in a, a significant move up. I shift time frame. So right now I'm on the monthly time frame, which means every single candle represents one month of trading action. And whenever I'm analyzing something, I start zoomed out and I want the big picture. And then I zoom in from there and look at the details. So this is an example of a chart that is obviously it's been on a monster run and was extremely over, overbought to the upside. And generally when you get that kind of imbalance, you get what we refer to as a climax top where, again, it just happened with oil in the short term, but you get so extended in one direction that when the supply, when the, the scales tilt between supply and demand, it's fast and it's hard and you get a very wide range and a significant amount of volatility. So I look at this monthly time frame and I can say, okay, we had a major run up. We've gone hundreds of percent in a short amount of time, but we also just topped out and dumped a very fast 40% plus. So from there, I zoom in, I can see the weekly time frame is okay. We were in a nice strong uptrend. And again, the uptrend for me is just a representation of higher lows and higher highs. So there's our top. We set a higher low. We tighten up a little bit. We get one more bull break. And then the uptrend is lost when we lose those higher lows. And I also have some of these lines here. These are exponential moving averages. Those just help visualize trends as well as one of my tools. And we then had a solid bounce over the last couple of days. I think I'm missing today's action as I don't have the up to the minute data here. But we can see the last two days, we had a very significant bounce of, what was that, 20% plus? So just, just to go, or 30%. So just to go into a little bit, we have the RSI on the bottom here. And we can see the RSI, generally when it gets above 70, it's considered overbought. And when it gets below 30, it's considered oversold. When you're in a blue sky breakout run, and when I say blue sky breakout, I mean something that it's all time highs. The overbought RSI is a lot less meaningful because there's a lot of power behind that. And there's no previous price history. So it's a lot easier to run the price up. It's pretty much the the extreme FOMO, fear of missing out. You know, everybody's bullish and it's just going. And if you're a bull, the best place to be in is blue sky breakout with zero price history. And you're entering essentially new price discovery. And so when you leave that strong uh, uptrend, first oversold conditions generally are good buying opportunities. Because if you're just thinking about the psychology of the setup, you have people watching this run saying, oh man, I don't want to chase up here. It's gone up so much so soon. And then the first big pullbacks, that's when people who have been on the sidelines are looking, okay, now I can make an entry. So first daily oversold conditions coming off of an all-time high is generally a good time to be looking for a solid bounce. And just looking at, at the example here, we hit a low of 55. We tried to get a bounce going, didn't get much follow through. And we came back and re revisited that support level. And we held it by a dollar and 50 cents. That's my kind of entry. That is what I call a bottom fishing play, where I'm looking for a play off of the previous support and have, looking to have low risk and high reward. So obviously, this is in hindsight at this point, but let's just say, you know, we see a big bounce. Okay, that is our low. 55 is a key short term support. We fade back down towards it. Let's say I make an entry at 59 and then one more at 57 and I will exit if 55 breaks because if 55 breaks, that tells me a bottom has not been found. We're hitting fresh lows and there's still a lot of downward momentum. But so my risk would be, you know, my average in that example is 58. If we break 55, I'm going to lose $3 and $3 and change. And if, if we hold that level, obviously we've seen a very significant bounce. So the reward possibility is much more significant than the risk. So if I continually as a trader position myself in setups that have a, a risk of, let's just say one or two and a reward that's multiple times more than that risk, two or four, then over time, if I am a good trader, it's going to lead to, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I lose all the time as a trader, but my losses are a lot smaller than my wins. And so that's what keeps me a profitable trader. Wow. Dan truly is a master of his trade. And if you're into day trading, I highly recommend checking out the Chart Guys channel on YouTube. He's been very helpful throughout the years for me in learning technical analysis. I personally don't day trade, but I do like to explore options and understand what's available out there if I decided to move in that direction. Although many others 
wouldn't even consider day trading. And if that's the case, that's totally okay too. Perhaps you're somebody who doesn't enjoy crunching numbers as much as looking into individual companies' characteristics. If that's the case, sit back, listen to what Braden Dennis had to say from the Canadian investor in Stratosphere on the characteristics that he looks for in a business. Yeah, I think it'd be easy to just kind of go th- through uh, six characteristics we look for in every company for Stratosphere when we're doing our research. So for those who don't know, we basically cover a list of high quality companies and we have not only a scoring system for them, but we talk about their competitive advantages and what makes them great. Uh, you know, in, in a few moments, you'll go from knowing maybe very little to nothing about the business to understanding what they do, why they're great, why it's a defensible business and what the risks are. Because every business has risks. If you don't know what they are, if you don't think the company has any risks, you just don't know it well enough yet. So something to consider. Now there's six characteristics that we have as like kind of like a, a must check. And there's a long list of, of nice to haves after that. But I can go through uh, what they are. Put very simply, I'm trying to own the highest quality businesses that produce actual cash flows and consistently compound year over year and, and, and have a track record of doing so. And so when it comes to a track record, growing top line revenue and cash flows is, is a must. Even just dude, like the amount of companies you can weed out that just don't grow sales is like a huge portion of the investable universe. If you look at long-term return composition, revenue growth cures all problems. Revenue growth or what startups call it, like what I call it, traction. Traction cures everything. Every problem you have in your business, traction cures it. Same with revenue. Number two, a recognizable moat that's durable and, and obvious. Like I could be able to explain to you it in, in just a few seconds is like super obvious, like really high moat business, like Moody's Corporation or S&P Global. Like you need your bonds rated, like from a regulatory perspective, there's only a few players in town and and as Moody's and S&P. And so really durable business, recognizable moat, cash flows that we can project for a really long time. Easy example. Underpinned by secular growth trends is nice. There are so many examples of this, but Long-term, a lot of the large winners and companies that continue to, back to my first point, consistently grow, (laughs) like revenue growth cures all, is by actually being in a segment of the the world that is growing. Like seems so simple and ridiculous. And that's because it is. It's so simple. And so we try to keep it as simple as possible by, by, you know, we're not trying to buy companies that are in a dying business because we think that you know it's some special situation. Like we think we can get it for really cheap. I don't care how cheap a stock is. I don't care about this. Like you know, it trades at six times EV to EBITDA when it's in a, either a dying business or a dying industry. It, it makes it so much harder. You have to be right on so many more variables, and it's not something I'm trying to do. Uh, number four, the most Dude, I could talk about this all day. I could do I do a podcast that basically talks about this all day, which is the company has pricing power. The company has to have pricing power. And this is why I'm not interested. You know, we're on a Canadian podcast. People are always interested about oil and gas names, some commodity, gold, potash, wheat. The list goes on and on about uh, certain businesses. They could be extremely well run. Like Suncor, for instance, what a what a wonderfully run business. Do I want to own it? No, they have no pricing power. That business succeeds when macro factors that I cannot predict or control are are good for them. And so that's not something I want to do. A company that can reliably increase their prices in a boardroom meeting, Apple doesn't decide what their prices are based on macro factors. You know, maybe it goes into their cost structure, of course. But they decide what the price of the iPhone is in a board meeting. That is a structural advantage that I want to be on the part of, not dictated by the market. And then wrapping up the last two is the company has to demonstrate 
reliably and consistently that they are good at earning a return with cash left over that the business generates. That usually comes out in the form of high invested, uh, high returns on invested capital, that ROIC number that investors talk about quite a bit. You know, it is so important, right? Because businesses have a decision tree of capital allocation decisions. And obviously one of them being investing back in the business. That breaks out into a branch of many things, depending on what the company does to reinvest back into it, whether it's better infrastructure, better customer support, new product offerings. After a long period of time, that comes out in the numbers as them be as them having a good business because a good business allows for the management team to reinvest at high returns over time. And so that'll usually come out in that ROIC number that people talk about quite a bit. We want to see it high consistently and, and not so lumpy. And lastly, kind of relating to the fifth point, but management being aligned with long-term performance and execution. This usually is you know, this is an art, right? You're not going to find it in, 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 any, in any statement. You're going to find it in the way that they write on the reports and the way they talk on earnings calls. It's pretty easy to get those earnings calls. So just, just listen to them. And, you know, even if it's just one quarter, you know, the CEO might talk for 15 minutes, maybe the CFO talks for a bit, and then they answer questions from analysts at the end. And they're pretty quick. You can skip through most of it and um, you get an idea for the way they talk and how they're aligned with long-term performance. If they're talking about short-term stuff, if they're talking about their stock, not so interested, more so looking to see that they are aligned with long-term shareholders and have they been around for a while, right? Like founder-led companies that have been around for a while, those are the best, man. Like you want the person running the business to not only have significant financial stake in the game, but also even more than that. That's what founders have when they run a public company. I mean, look at, look at what Mark Zuckerberg's accomplished, what the guy's like 36, 37 years old. You want to partner with those people, right? Like I think about investing in, in a company just like I would invest in a private company. If someone's going to invest in my company in Stratosphere, they're making a bet on me. They're like, especially in the early stages, they're making a bet on my execution to grow the business and find new customers. And like I said, find traction, it cures all problems. And so with public companies as well, you want to be aligned with the, with the, with the, uh, the people that run the company and you want to make sure that they have uh, shareholders and all other shareholders, like all the stakeholders, like employees in mind, because at the end of the day, long-term that's, that's really what matters not only for the company, but for your investment returns as well. Braden's clearly put a lot of thought and effort into the six characteristics that he looks for in a business. I can appreciate his conviction in his method. And I have to say that this is one of the great things about finance. We don't always have to agree. And in my case, I believe in the commodity markets. I believe in commodity businesses. And I especially like to look at Canadian oil at times. So With that being said, maybe we can move on to somebody who knows oil much better than I do, and that's Shabam Garg from White Tundra. Here's his bullish thesis on oil. The way the thesis kind of is, is it revolves around, when we look at oil in the past, it's it's been this cyclical nature. Every five years, the price of oil goes up and then stays there for five years, and then comes down for five years. We have sort of this boom bust cycle that many, many people are just used to. Um, They don't maybe notice it in their day-to-day lives, but it's just how it's been. And what's happened is that after 2014, the cycle got sort of screwed up. And what happened was we have conventional oil and then we have shale oil. Conventional oil being sort of long lead projects. So you put the money in today, the oil doesn't come online for three to five years. When it does come online, it's a steady, production cycle. So, so it stays at that rate for you know, 10, 15, 20 years at a very low decline rate. And what happened was we had these, these short cycle American shale come on the, on the scene in about 2013, 2014. And what shale is, it's very, very fast production. So if I put the money in the ground today, I can get a barrel of oil out in like three months or even less possibly. But the problem is shale oil declines. So if I get 100 barrels today, by the end of one year, so 12 months, 
it's going to be maybe 25 or 30 barrels. So a high, high decline rate on it. And what happened was people were tripping over themselves since 2014. The industry got overcapitalized. They were being paid on production growth, not making any money, but they kept drilling because they were getting paid on production growth. So they kept drilling. There was too much supply of oil. Whenever the price looked like it was going to go back up, they just started drilling more and brought more supply online. And in the meantime, the conventional oil projects never got capitalized. So these projects that were sort of dripping production every year as they came online. So think about your OPEC oil, your Russian oil, some of your Canadian oil sands, which is not really conventional, but it falls under the same production regime. All these projects, some of the offshore stuff, it never got capitalized. And we were beginning to enter a cycle in late 2019 where we saw the end of shale growth. Not the end of shale, but the end of shale growth. Shale adding one to two million barrels a year, it was it was really slowing down. And in the meantime, world demand just kept picking up despite all the narratives of, of EVs and renewables and we're going to kill the industry and oil's never going above $12 again and, and all this stuff. Um, demand just kept picking up from emerging markets, from the Indias of the world, the Vietnams, the uh, Nigeria, some of the South American countries, even OPEC countries, demand just kept picking up. So we were at this point where the market was getting into balance and we had a line of sight to an undersupplied market and then COVID hit. What we saw was a massive demand shock. And at the same time, supply as well got hit because nobody wants to produce oil at $20, $25 a barrel. So coming out of that, what ended up happening was demand got back way faster than supply did. And we started drawing inventories, inventories being our savings account. So we had crude and products and gasoline and diesel all over the world. And we just started drawing these uh, products one by one, day by day, week by week, month by month. And we were definitely in an undersupplied market. And the theory was, okay, there's no conventional projects coming online. Shale is unable to add production. And nobody really wants to spend money on increasing production. So we're going to stay in this undersupplied market until we hit a level that either producers want to invest again in oil or you have demand destruction to the point where the market gets brought back into this balanced sort of regime, which the thesis is, is a lot higher than where we are today. To kind of elaborate on that a little bit, from 2010 to 14, when we were in this sort of undersupplied oil market, a lot of producers were taking on a lot of debt. They would go and, and really start drilling. They wanted to bring projects online. They wanted to capitalize the market. And the whole mandate was how much production can we grow? It was not about making money or paying dividends or doing share buybacks. It was how much production can we grow? That has completely shifted from that cycle to this cycle. We're now in a cycle here where we've been above $90 a barrel, call it roughly, for almost nine months now, you can say. And we're not seeing production growth, not from shale, not from Canadian producers, not from OPEC, not from offshore. No projects worldwide are getting sanctioned. So where is the supply going to come from? And that's really where the thesis begins. A lot of people thought, oh, as soon as the prices got higher, companies would just invest more and we would have a very short cycle of higher prices. And it's not really looking to be the case. There's, there's no investment happening. We remain in this undersupplied market. We have sort of band-aided the problem with absolutely massive uh, strategic petroleum reserve releases out of the US and other countries as well around the world. And we had China slow down massively this year. They had a large portion of their economy shut down for greater than six months of this year, right after the Olympics happened. So those two band-aids have really hewed the, the reality of the market and what's coming on the horizon. And that's where we sit today. We sit here with the market sort of in balance, slightly undersupplied, China reopening, adding maybe up to 2 million barrels a day of oil demand. We see Russian production falling off, their exports falling off. We see the world itself opening. We saw news out of Australia. We knew, saw news out of uh, Macau, out of Canada, that they're going to reopen to sort of a, a fully reopening status, which is just more oil demand. This is despite talk of a, of a recession. This is despite the US GDP printing negative for two quarters in a row, probably going to end up for three quarters in a row or more. And with interest rates rising, the oil supply demand has just not changed because any demand that's coming down in the, in the developed markets 
is just growing in emerging markets. So you end up in a place where we're going to remain undersupplied for a long, long time. We've drained our inventories. Nobody wants to increase production until we get to higher pricing. And even if they do increase production, that production doesn't come online for three to five years, setting us up for this sort of bullish cycle, which uh, oil and gas investors are, are looking towards here as the months go on, as we go into 2023, as the USSPR drains to a low level, as China reopens, and then as the Russian barrels start to drop off the market. Amazing stuff. I highly recommend if you're interested in oil to follow Shabam. His handle is at White Tundra SG on Twitter. And the content that he provides is very well thought out and has taken a lot of work to produce. So with that being said, oil isn't the only commodity in mind. I asked Jamie Keach from Resource Insider what commodities we may want to look to for the green energy transition. Uranium, copper, nickel. Cannot go wrong with those three things, right? Lithium is going to go up and down. Cobalt, uh, vanadium, they're going to go up and down. They're smaller niche markets. Uranium, copper, nickel. They're massive markets and they are the most important elements of the, our energy infrastructure from a metals perspective. I mean, copper is in everything. Nickel, like you look at a lithium ion battery, it's still mostly nickel. Like these are really, really key elements that are essential to the energy transition. And if I'm just an investor wanting to put a little bit of money into something, I don't want to say safe, but something more stable than some of these more volatile uh, elements like lithium or cobalt in particular, then I would say you stick with those three over time. They're going to do you very well. That's my view. on Uranium, copper, nickel. I love that. Of course, these commodities can't be found through oil producers. So one way to get exposure is through miners. Here's what Jamie had to say about investing in mining companies. It depends which stage of that mining company you, you want to look at, right? Uh, you know, we have everything from the junior end of the spectrum. These are the early stage exploration companies where you're actually going out and you're looking to find new mineral deposits. You're, you know, poking holes in the ground with a drill and you're hoping that you find something and you're using if you're doing your job right all the best science and ge you know geo information available to help do that and then you have all the way up to sort of multinational multi-asset conglomerates where they have multiple mines you know often all over the world these are multi multi billion dollar or deca billion dollar companies you know the rio tintos the bhps of the world so there's a whole spectrum that you can invest in in the mining and, and natural resources sector. And it depends basically what level of risk you're willing to take. You know, the beautiful thing about the small companies, and this is really where we focus on a lot at Resource Insider, it's a lot of where my experience and my expertise kind of lay, is that if you do your job right, if you choose the right asset, if you're the right company and they make a big discovery or they develop an asset, you know, your returns can be pretty astronomical, right? They can be, you know, not just doubles or triples, but five-time returns, 10-time returns, whatever. The sky's the limit. We've all heard of these sort of discoveries that, you know, deliver 100-time returns to shareholders. The flip side of that is that they can also go to zero. There can, you know, be millions or tens of millions, or in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of shareholder money spent, basically burnt uh, you know, poured into the ground and have nothing to show for it. And that's the result that happens more often than not. And there's a huge amount of risk in that scale of investing. There's a huge amount of luck involved. You know, I mean, what exploration companies are doing is is speculating, really. You know, they're making what I would say they're making. Uh, they have a hypothesis. It's just like any other sort of science experiment. They They have a hypothesis and they go out and test that hypothesis. And the problem with testing a hypothesis in the mining space is sometimes it costs $50 million to test that hypothesis and, you know, then there's nothing there. So if you're the kind of investor that likes the high risk, high return, you know, that's maybe the spot for you. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, there's very professionally run decabillion dollar mining companies with the risk diversified across a variety of jurisdictions, a variety of assets at different stages, et cetera, et cetera. And these are often great. If you're just looking for exposure to a given commodity, you can invest in a copper mining company or a gold mining company or, or what have you. And that's a much, much safer way to get exposure to that if you're looking to really minimize your risk levels to, to the best you can. And if those companies are well run and they're profitable and they've got you know competent, diligent management, 
they should be able to outperform the underlying commodity, right? A great run gold company should in theory outperform the price of gold and the same for copper or whatever. Doesn't always happen this way, but your risk of a complete blow up of, you know, the share price going down 90% is pretty low on that. And then your upside is still quite high or at least reasonably high in a strong sort of commodity market. What a great piece of knowledge there from Jamie. This is somebody who lives and breathes mining and he's telling us it's not that easy. Brings me back to the thought from Brian Feraldi on investing is hard. And even once you get the numbers and once you decide what you want to invest in, it gets even harder when you start playing mind games with yourself. Do I buy now? Do I sell? Is that the right decision? Was that the wrong decision? How do we go about our investing process as we move forward and try to stay mentally strong? Let's go back to Brian when he talks about how human behavior is built for us to be a bad investor. Well, understand again that two things. One, investing is hard, really hard. Two, you were absolutely born to be a bad investor. Now, what do I mean by that? Everything about our biology and our psychology today is perfectly designed to keep us alive 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago, the way that you stayed alive, you were born into a tribe of a few hundred people at most. And every emotional reaction, every thought that you have, all the fear and the greed that you have is about surviving in that kind of environment. The way that you survive in that kind of environment is you go with the group. Whatever the group is doing, whatever you're seeing your friends and family do, that's what you do because that's where safety is. If you see your friends and family getting excited about something, you get excited about that thing. If you see your friends and family scared about something, biologically, you get scared about that thing. So everything that makes us so well adapted to surviving in that environment 10,000 years ago also makes us perfectly horrendously to be adapted for investing in the markets. The natural thing that everybody wants to do investing in the markets is to pile in when returns look effortless. Some people will only invest in the market after they've heard from their neighbor or from their grandson or from whoever that making money in the market is easy. You buy something and it has gone up and they show you look how much money they made in the market. And that convinces people to, to come in. So people naturally want to buy. It feels best to buy at the top. Conversely, when does it feel the worst to invest? Right now, when only thing you see is negative headlines, when the returns from the market have been read, when everybody on social media is talking negatively about the market and they're highlighting the Fed or inflation or bad things and the recent history of the market is read. You, you can track this very clearly, especially if you're active on social media like Twitter. In 2020, Twitter was a buzz talking about investing and individual stocks and Kathy Wood. And those were the tweets that were getting the most play and, and going out there. And there are hundreds of people contributing to that conversation. 90% of those people are gone. They're not there anymore because they were essentially renters. They, they, were, they were tourists of the, the stock market. They weren't, they weren't residents of the stock market. The only way to do well in the market is to stick with it for long periods of time, especially especially now, especially when things are going against you. And human nature is programmed, has programmed you to want to do the exact opposite uh, of that. So if it feels like you're getting down on yourself, if you feel like you're scared, if you feel like everything you do is wrong, uh, that's because you are biologically programmed to be bad at investing, just like everybody. Else. I have to say, I think Brian is bang on with his analysis here. I think it's important for us to realize that it's only natural to feel emotions as the markets go up and down or interest rates rise or perhaps something has changed for your personal finances. And it's also important to know that everybody has their own personal experiences with money in, and that can also have an impact on how you view your own financial situation. Jordan Syatt from Syatt Fitness has a great take on this. And he also includes how if you're struggling with money, the best way to get through some of these processes, money, or in his case, nutrition, is through knowledge and to understand that nothing's going to happen overnight and we need to take have a long-term outlook on many of these issues. I mean, the reality is this, like, I mean, speaking about finance, so I actually have had a, a very bad relationship with money my whole life in terms of, I get a lot of anxiety around it. It was always a big issue in my house growing up. We did not grow up with a lot of money and it was 
always a form of a, 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 a stressor, always, like no matter what. Like if we were lucky enough to go on a vacation, the entire vacation was worrying about how much money we're spending. It was like, we couldn't even enjoy it if we did go on a vacation, which was rare, but money was always a fear. We were going to lose the house. We were going to like, whatever it was always. So I grew up with money equals anxiety, money equals fear, which was very weird for me as I started to build a business and I started to make money. I ended up going to the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of I didn't spend anything. I just saved and saved and saved and saved because I was like, I don't know if this is all going to go away. And like, that was just my mindset. Like, I don't spend money. I save money. I get it. I save it. I get it. I save it until I got to a point where I remember I started to talk to an investor and my my friend is an accountant. And, and basically they were like, are you investing this in anything? And I was like, no, I'm just keeping it in the bank. And like, well, how much do you have in the bank? And I told them, they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you need to get this out there. And and for me, it was a huge amount of anxiety. I was like, why would I do that? Like, this is safe. This is here. But I didn't understand this long-term mindset and, and how it can grow over time. And I just, I was uneducated on it. I was very, very uneducated on it. But the one thing that, whether it's it's strength training or wrestling or jujitsu, the, the fitness world, which is what I know is... Number one, you have to educate yourself on it. And number two is you have to understand that nothing is going to happen overnight. And any time in any endeavor in my life that I've tried to get the quick fix, whether it's fat loss, whether it's muscle gain, whether it's it's strength gain, whether it's finance, whatever it is, at any time I've tried to get the quick fix, I've regretted it always, which is actually why one of my best friends was telling me like, get in on these NFTs, get in on these NFTs, get in on these NFTs dropping hundreds of thousands of dollars on NFTs. And I was just like, I'm good, bro. Like, I really don't want to. It's like, I don't, I I don't, I have no desire to just because I don't know. And, and I told him, I was like, listen, I would rather not invest this money and lose out on potentially making millions than invest this money and lose thousands. I was like, I would, that's like the way that I measure it. It's like, I would be more mad that I lost a couple hundred thousand then I would be happy from making a couple million. And then, and so for me, and I think that for him, put him in a lot of perspective for him as well. He's like, oh, okay. Like that's a different way to look at it. So for me, anytime I've tried to make a quick fix or whether it's quick money or quick fat loss or quick muscle gain or quick strength gain, I do something stupid and I regret it every single time. So for me, it's, it's a lot less about the day to day and more about, well, what's going to happen in five, 10, 15, 20 years. Jordan had to be one of the most entertaining guests that I interviewed on my show. And one of the most knowledgeable as well, some people may wonder why I dive into fitness as well as finance, but I find that there are a lot of lessons that transition from fitness to finance. And a lot of that comes because habits, dedication, discipline, these are all things that you need in finance and fitness as well, not to mention a long-term mindset. Let's go back to Jordan again. He's He had a really good point about how the vast majority of millionaires are self-made and how hard work can pay off in both fitness and finance. Yes, there's a lot to discuss here. And so I'm a research guy. I really like diving into this stuff. And the more comfortable I've gotten with finances and money, the more I've actually started looking into and educating myself on it, or probably because I've educated myself more, I've gotten more comfortable with it. But so there's a lot to discuss here. The first thing I think is in terms of, you know, there are people who inherit a tremendous amount of money. There are. What I found interesting is if we look at the research, most millionaires are self-made. Most people with over a million dollars like do it themselves. There is a small percentage of people who actually are who get it from an inheritance, but the majority are self-made. Like that's they didn't inherit it, which for me is one of the best motivators ever. Because it's like if the majority, if the vast majority could do it on their own, then so can you. You can it's like it's a huge, I think. And, and I say this the exact same thing with the genetics argument with fitness. People are like, oh, well, they have the genetics, they have the genetics. It's like you're using that as a justification not to try. You're using like the genetics or using the, the, oh, well, they inherited that. Cool. What does that have to do with you? Like not to mention, I think inheriting that amount of money is a huge disadvantage, not necessarily from a finance perspective, but from a life perspective, inheriting a tremendous sum of money usually doesn't end very well for that person. They usually aren't very happy on a happiness scale. They aren't very fulfilled on a fulfillment scale. Oftentimes, they're far more likely to be getting divorced. They're far more likely to be unhappy individuals. Whereas the people who really work for it, they're way, way happier, way more positive, way more optimistic because they've seen what it's like on the other side and they've put in the work and they've put their, their heart and their soul into it. Same thing with the people who have achieved amazing things with their health and fitness. It's like, 
you take these people who started on one end and they get all the way to the other end. It's like they worked so hard and they know how unhappy they were on the other side versus these people who have just been genetically gifted, which is a very small percentage, a super small percentage of people are just genetically gifted and stay that way forever. Oftentimes we see the results of the genetics at a very young age. So we all have friends in middle school, high school, maybe even college who are just genetic freaks. But by the time they're 40, like those genetics like are not what they used to be. And so it's like, that person really, really struggles because they relied on their genetics. It's like the person who relies on the the funding from their parents until all of a sudden that funding runs out and they're like, now I got to work. Now they're in deep shit. Same thing with the people who are like focused on you only using their genetics. They never work out. They never focus on what they eat. And all of a sudden they're 40 years old and they're like, they don't look anything like they used to look and they don't know why they don't know what to do versus the person who started off having to work from the very beginning. And they know what they have to do. And they're actually usually happier because they know how unhappy they were before and how much happy they are, happier they are now focusing on their health and fitness. So I think that it's a huge advantage to not have these things from the very beginning and to start with that working, that work ethic. And, and obviously it's harder, but people are happier, more filled and better off from it. So there's that aspect. And then in terms of like genetics for health and fitness, even like the vast majority of people are not going to be the top 1%. In fact, 99% of people are not going to be the top 1%, like we know for a fact. So, but just because you're not going to be an Olympic athlete or be shredded to the bone doesn't mean you can't put some real extra years on your life. And not only more years, but a higher quality of, of, of life those years. Be with your family longer, see your kids get married, see your grandkids, maybe even your great grandkids being able to like, I mean, for me, when I do jujitsu, I roll with some guys who are, and some women as well, who are 60, 70, 80 years old and they're training, they're fighting. I'm like, that's amazing. That's incredible. That these people do this several times a week and they're that age. It's like, that's what I want to do when I'm that age. I don't want to like be sitting at home on the couch or unable to walk around because I'm out of breath. And you don't have to be a world-class athlete to do that. You just have to stay consistent and move on a regular basis. An inspiring clip there from Jordan. If they can do it, so can you. I found his words to be very motivating in my journey, and I hope you did as well. Sticking with the fitness and finance theme, I can't think of a harder task than fighting. There's so much mental toughness, dedication, training, passion that goes into a fight. So I thought I would ask Paul Halmy if there were any lessons he learned from MMA that he carried over to finance. A ton. Yeah. I mean, even like you said, even a, people are like, oh, I just had an amateur fight, but people don't understand. It's like, that, that's hard. That's stressful. It's scary. It's like, I always joke around and like, everybody was in high school. And nobody wanted to get in a fight in high school unless you were a crazy kid. So then people are like, what's fighting like? I'm like, well, it's like, imagine you're in high school and everybody's like, okay, you know, Joe's going to fight Steve behind the building at four o'clock in front of 2000 people and a little pair of shorts. And you got six weeks to think about it. I mean, it's horrible. Like the lead ups, just people don't realize the mind game. It's like, yes, it's physical. You have to be in great shape. That's a given. If you're not in good shape, and you're not training hard, you're going to get destroyed. But even if you're doing all those things, right, it's still a mental game. Your mind is just constantly like, oh my God, oh my God, what did I do? And then the day of you're like, I'm insane. Why am I doing this? This doesn't make any sense. And part of you, and I'll be honest, what part of you doesn't even want to do it. Like you're, that day, you're just kind of like, oh my God, it's like, I don't want to do this, but I have to, because I signed up for it. So that helps a lot with entrepreneurship because you're going to be under stress. Sometimes you have to make tough decisions. And that's what I love. One thing I love about jujitsu and MMA is like, you're under so much pressure and it's like, you're trying to solve a difficult problem and your heart rate's at about 160 beats per minute. You're exhausted. And then you got to make a decision where it's like, if I make the wrong decision, I could get knocked out or I can get choked out. So when you come to business, you're like, okay, this is really bad. So let's slow it down. Let's not react real fast. Cause that's going to be the worst thing I can do in business. It's like, what are my options? Okay. Start looking for it and then look for the answer. And you're like, oh, okay, this wasn't so bad. I, I, you know, I got through it and just learn how to relax under pressure is the biggest thing for me. Indeed in business, entrepreneurship, investing, fitness, these can all be very stressful at times. But one thing that can keep us moving forward is our habits and our behaviors and our dedication to a process. This is something I talked to Aaron Adkin about in our podcast. Take a listen. Human beings are pretty typical creatures in a sense where we want things fast. You know, we want results fast, whether that's money or whether that's, uh, you know, uh, six pack abs. And I think people are always trying to find that magical solution because they see somebody on Twitter, they see someone on Instagram who's, who, you know, got lucky that one time and, and either in the finance side, we'll, we'll say like got lucky and bought that shit coin that went to, you know, a million dollars and a hundred X and, you know, they got rich. 
or on the fitness side, they look at somebody who has say, maybe just, you know, very natural genetics and, uh, you know, they're crushing pizza on Instagram and, and, uh, on a nightly basis and, and maintaining some six pack abs. So I think that's also important with clients is I always try and make sure that they understand a reasonable a timeline of what is required to get the results they need. Because I have a lot of people that I think don't realize the importance of long-term, just being long-term consistent with the basics is really all you need. That is really all you need. Um, but a lot of people have a hard time with that. <laughs> Consistency, long-term mindset, and achievable goals. These are three themes that I hear often in my podcasts, and it got me thinking, what should our financial goals be? I asked Diana Merriam, the founder of the Economy Conference, what the FIRE community believes to be financially independent and how they deal with headwinds such as inflation. So if you think about the number that we're, most of us are pursuing is 25 times our annual expenses, right? And so that translates to something called the 4% rule, which is really a model for traditional retirement, right? So it's it's saying if you withdraw 4% from your portfolio over the course of 30 years is kind of what the model is based off of, you will 96% of the time have enough money for the rest of your life, right? And so the 4% rule is something that a lot of us use as a guideline, especially when you're you know, at the point where you're going to retire early. Maybe you're not anticipating any additional income and you're going to work on a drawdown strategy of your portfolio. But the inflation is baked into that guideline. And so the rule is 4% plus inflation. Now, of course, extended high inflation is a significant risk, especially when you like initially retire and in those early years. Mind you, the 4% rule was developed from the Trinity study, which considered high inflation like in the 80s when it was at like, I mean, double digit percentages, right? And so inflation is kind of baked into the numbers. And just like we see when we make assumptions around investment returns, and maybe we're using seven or 8%, you know, investment returns, that's kind of an average over a long period of time. So same thing with inflation. When we make assumptions, we're making assumptions on an average over a long period of time. And so, you know, some years it's going to be a lot higher, some years it's going to be a lot lower than those assumptions. And so it balances out over the long run. I also think that it's important to keep in mind the personal rate of inflation that you have doesn't necessarily match the overall rate of inflation of a typical consumer. And so I give an example, you know, I'm I'm seeing inflation most personally at the grocery store for myself, right? And so before all of this high inflation, I only ever bought meat that was less than $3 a pound. That was just my policy. I go and look at what meat is on sale and I stock up on anything that's less than $3 a pound. I still follow that rule today. Now today, it's more likely that I'm going to find pork for less than $3 a pound and less likely to find beef. But just the other day, I bought you know, three big tubes of beef that was let, that were on sale for less than $3 a pound. So I think it's important to recognize that when prices are going up, especially due to inflation, there's still options within that. And so I think if you have flexibility and you can be smart about your options, you can navigate inflation a little bit more skillfully. I'll give you another example. I had recently taken a trip with a friend and it's a, you know, it was a cross state trip where I would normally fly but flights were like $500 each. And so we opted to take a nine hour drive and it was actually really fun and like kind of preferable to my recent flying experiences. But we ended up paying around $200 in gas, even with the gas prices where they are. I also think another thing I'll say about inflation is that the larger your gap between your income and your expenses, the less I feel inflation be like the inflation becomes more of an inconvenience than a catastrophe right so if i've got a 60% savings rate and during this period of high inflation oh no it goes down to 50% boohoo 
You know, like, like that's not, this is why we create financial bandwidth for ourselves to be able to navigate these kind of financial hurdles. So I know I personally have set myself up that I have so much financial bandwidth that yes, prices are going up, but I'm, I just don't feel as inflation as much as someone that is like living paycheck to paycheck. Some terrific advice there from Diana. I have to respect the fire community's discipline and dedication to saving so they can retire early. Having a strong work-life balance is something that I can appreciate and definitely a goal of mine is to retire as early as I can and live the life that I want. With that said, I generally like to focus on energy in my portfolio. And if you follow me or if you listen to the podcast, you'll know that carbon credits and net zero and the energy transition is a place where I spend a lot of my time and research. So it would be a shame to end this episode without a shout out to Doomberg, who came on for the episode Energy is Life. I asked Doomberg what he thought the current state of the energy market was. Well, obviously, energy is well off the highs from the summer at the peak of the energy crisis. And our phrase, you know, energy is life is born from the fact that without energy, of course, there can be no society, there can be no standard of living. The human endeavor, in fact, is just a constant unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. And so literally, your standard of living is defined by how much energy you get to waste. And for a period of time, more than a decade, I would say, we were in a period of excess primary energy. So energy prices were low and there was abundance of energy driven primarily by the revolution in technology and the shell patch in the US. COVID changed a lot of that, the lockdowns associated with COVID, as well as ESG policies and energy companies renewed focus on cash flow instead of growth. Met for a period of time earlier this year, we were in a situation where not only were we short primary energy, but the market feared that the situation could get much worse. And of course, today's price is a combination of supply, demand and expectations. It looks like so far, at least the edge of the potential risk factors around the energy crisis have been abated or removed because of unseasonably warm weather in Europe. And that has deflated the price of energy. And also, of course, the Chinese lockdowns, the zero COVID policy in China, the release of oil from the US Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and a slowing economy, especially in Europe, have contributed to a rebalancing of supply and demand and a resetting of price in a downward direction. There's signs that China is opening. And as we're recording this, President Xi just landed in Saudi Arabia and is getting the red carpet treatment from MBS. So we shall see. It's going to be an interesting few months for sure. But at the macro level, there's a lot of pessimism in the energy trading market around the future, which could be a good contraindicator of perhaps a turn in the prices. But right now, some of the worst case scenario risk from the concerns that were totally justifiable this summer seem to have been abated. Energy is one of those subjects to me that I just find so fascinating. The macro of the macro. The world runs on energy. We all need it. We all use it. And without energy, we'd basically be screwed. So it's something I like to focus on and it's something we'll always need. And Duberg provided a good picture there on where we are today. I thought I would ask him about net zero, what he thought about the net zero transition and if he knew of a good path forward or one that we may perhaps take that could assist us in finding good investments. And there's so many different definitions of net zero, but I'll say this the path to radically reducing our carbon intensity, assuming that we keep that as a goal, involves a combination of nuclear power and then smartly electrifying our vehicle fleet and then massive investments in things like insulation and so on. You know, so that, that, In fact, you know, lighting is a huge source of CO2 emissions. And put it this way, let's just take electric vehicles for an example. Right now, the policies and government support and incentives are all directed towards moving people from internal combustion engines to full battery electric vehicles. There's a worldwide shortage of battery materials, things like nickel and uh, cobalt and lithium and copper wiring and so on. That worldwide shortage of battery materials needs to be the thing that we manage to. That's the constraint. And so our view is that instead of pushing full BEVs, where you might have a you know an 80 kilowatt hour battery in one car, from that same 80 kilowatt hours worth of batteries, you can make four plug-in hybrids, 20 kilowatt hours each, that you could probably shave 90% of people's fossil fuel uses across four cars. And the math is very simple and undeniable. With one big battery electric vehicle, you abate one person's fossil fuels, at least you know gasoline use. And with four plug-in hybrids, you abate four times 90 is 3.6, you know, it's 360. So it's almost four times better fossil fuel abated per pound of battery to go plug-in hybrid. So our policy would be a rejuvenation of nuclear power, 
and then we would reorient our strategy around electrification towards plug-in hybrids. You're always going to need some form of fossil fuels for driving big diesel trucks, for example. Those would be very difficult to electrify, but also as a starting material for the chemical industry and so on. And so I think the optimization equation has to be total standard of living we wish to provide our citizens divided by CO2 emission and driving CO2 down and increasing people's standard of living is the trade-off. It's amazing how we come back full circle to Jamie Keach's comment, uranium, copper, and nickel. I always find it interesting when I hear similar opinions from more than one very smart person. And in this case, Jamie, Doomberg, and others have often said that the energy transition could be very expensive and could provide some opportunities for investors moving forward. Of course, if you're not interested in traditional commodities like uranium, copper, or nickel, then perhaps you may want to look into carbon credits. Now, this is a topic that I've covered very extensively and one that if you're interested in, feel free to check out any of my podcasts with Peter Sainsbury. I'll add a quick clip for anybody who's not willing to dive that deep into carbon credits where I asked Peter what he thought about the public market opportunities and what he thought some headwinds or tailwinds for the industry may be. You know, a lot of them are in terms of listed companies that are listed on the, like the NEO exchange in, in Canada, uh, you know, particularly companies like uh, Carbon Streaming. But, uh, you know, there's other, other ones like, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Smarter Markets podcast, you know, the uh, ABEX exchange is, again, listed on NEO and, you know, they're looking at much more of a kind of a broader look at the, the whole voluntary space. So it's not just about sort of project developing. I think it's, it's an interesting space. And I think at the moment, they've suffered because of sort of recent poor prices in, in the voluntary carbon market and a lot of un, you know, kind of uncertainty, you know, particularly around the use of credits in, in some sort of Southeast Asian countries. You know, to pick on you know, carbon streaming, you know, their share prices dropped, you know, I think, well below where they IPO'd back in 2021, I think it was. Part of that's been because of this kind of uncertainty over the issuance, issuance of credits in places like Indonesia, especially where they've got a you know, a big part of their portfolio is one of you know the projects based based there, and also countries like you know neighbouring Papua New Guinea as well. You know, a major issuance issuers of credits, but again, are you know there's there's a degree of uncertainty at the moment, and part of it you know all kind of centres on this uncertainty over double counting when it comes to achieving their their nationally determined contributions because if they want to achieve their climate targets, they need to be very careful about avoiding double counting. They don't also they don't want to give away their their best assets to outside developers when you know as relatively you know less developed countries or less well off countries they don't want to be left with the, the poorest quality but highest cost projects. So all that kind of uncertainty has meant that Indonesia has delayed the issuance of its you know twenty twenty one credits in twenty twenty two. Carbon streaming as a company that's you know a major part of their you know, revenue streams or future revenue streams. That's what's, you know, kind of marked down their share price. Peter's bang on with his analysis here. Being that the carbon markets are still relatively new, it's going to be interesting to watch how they develop. Uncertainty will be the name of the game and there will be opportunity, but it's going to be hard to find. We're going to have to be very careful in our investments and look out for any kind of mishaps like this whole Indonesia circumstance with carbon streaming. I thought we could end the show with a little perspective, a little thought on the psychology of money from Chartman Dan once again. I think that he has an interesting perspective on trading and he likes to view the money as almost like a video game and it keeps him from being too emotional. I'm not saying that that's the way that any of us should view our money, but perhaps there is a way for us to kind of separate ourselves from the emotional impact that the ups and downs of the market can have on us. Hope you enjoy this clip from Chartman Dan. I recently just put out a video this past weekend on our YouTube channel, and we're just the chart guys on YouTube, but it was about trader psychology. And I went over the books in my, as I was, you know, growing up in my, my 20s, essentially, that were, had nothing to do with trading, that I was not reading with the trading in mind, but absolutely laid the foundational groundwork of emotional control, which is essential for trading. Because again, when money is in play, emotions are very high. And we have to rewire our brains to be able to, to capitalize on certain, certain situations. And so for me, it's a lot of balance where 
I am not your typical trader in the sense that I like farming and I'm constantly outside and I'm a bit of a hippie. And, and so for me, it's always balance where I get off the screen. And if I need to clear my mind, I go out into nature and I hike and I go into the woods and I put things into perspective. And I view the market as a video game of flashing numbers. And I know a lot of fundamental people view it as, okay, Apple's got these many assets and this many stores, and they've got these phones on the shelves. And if I'm buying these digital numbers in my account, I have a piece of those things. For me, it's just, it's just all a video game. And I keep that in perspective and it helps me stay grounded. And it helps me from getting overly attached to what happens in this video game. Because again, when you zoom out, there are so many more important things in life than these flashing numbers on a screen. And big picture, you know, this doesn't matter. I think about society 500 years from now, and they're going to potentially look back at this and think of what a, what a joke this all was. People put this much time and effort and this much stress about this thing. You know, it's, just, it's like thinking back to, to pre-civilization where some dude somewhere was really stressing about his collection of rocks that were used as money back then. And some people died over these rocks and killed other people, people over these little rocks. And I think that the stock market is just a version of that. So it's very important for me to stay balanced. And this is a tool for me to accrue capital. And I use capital to distribute into my community or to do things that I want to do in life. And that's the, the simple relationship that I have with this game. Some food for thought for everybody out there. And I think the key here is that finance is personal. And you have to find the method that's right for you. For Dan, he likes to trade and he likes to view the market as a video game. For others, they may like to view the fundamentals. Justin likes to analyze stocks and Braden prefers to find his six characteristics in every stock he buys. Some people like to hold long-term, some people like to hold short. Some people just like to pay down debt. Some people like to save, whatever works. As long as you're researching and learning and progressing forward, I think that that's going to be a successful process for anybody. With that being said, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to provide a huge shout out for all my guests. And I just want to say that not all the clips and not all the guests got into the show, but what a journey this has been this year. And I truly appreciate everybody who watches and listens to this show. And for me, it's all really just a learning process. And I just want to share all of those lessons and thoughts and discussions with anybody who's interested. So a huge thanks for me, for everybody listening. And, you know, this was the first full calendar year for my show, and I hope there'll be many more. Thanks again. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.